0: Today we have Dave Coles, an encourager and resource of church planning movements amongst unreached peoples, and he is a man of considerable experience. I've just read the book Bajpuri Breakthrough, which is the story linked that we know through David Watson, but now we're linking in with the the on-the-ground story with Victor John and Dave Coles, and it's a great pleasure to have him here. Dave Coles works with Beyond. And uh, that's a that's a great organisation that focuses on um, uh, DMM CPM uh, movements amongst unrich peoples, and uh, it's a real pleasure to have you with us, Dave. Thanks. Great to be with you, Dave. You're uh, uh, currently based in New York and um, mm-hmm. working um, working out of there, but you've spent many years. Um, Uh, on field in Southeast Asia. Um, Just give us a little context of who you are.
1: Yeah. Um, I felt a call to ministry, went to seminary, was a pastor in upstate New York for 10 years. And during that time, the Lord gave an increasing burden for the unreached. At at the beginning of that pastoral ministry, no burden for the unreached whatsoever. I was happy to see people saved, disciple them. But the Lord... Put on my heart, you know, there are a handful of gospel preaching churches in this teeny little town, and there are millions of Muslims that have no gospel witness, and that just is not right. And so through a process of prayer, talking with my wife, over the course of many years, the Lord led us to uh, sell the house, say goodbye to the church, take our four children to the other side of the world, and uh, move into a, a majority Muslim neighborhood and a majority Muslim nation and see what we could do to uh, bring the good news there. And Mm. the Lord gave us uh, more than two decades on the ground there. And uh, as my focus shifted just in recent years to a more global church planning movement focus, uh, we've now been based in the States for four years.
0: That's fantastic. And um, I know you've been writing and encouraging many. I've um, encountered your writing before the book Bajpuri Breakthrough uh, in articles like um, responses to objections to CPM or DMM. And that was a really good article. I've, I've referred to it a couple of times. and. Um, really good. But um, your latest um, well, maybe it's not your latest book. I don't know. You you, the book Bajpuri Breakthrough is what I just read through and really made me want to connect with you. Um, tell us a little bit about um, uh, how you came to write that story, and also who is that book for? Okay,
1: well, the way I came to write it was um, over the last. 10 or so years, 10 or 15 years, I had occasionally met Victor John. He came to Indonesia a couple of times and did sessions, and so I had seen him there, and uh, when I was involved in some church planning movement trainings, uh, we did one in uh, Delhi, and he came and shared there. So I'd interacted with Victor a bit, but uh, more recently, um, my supervisor was interacting very closely with Victor, and we uh, were with him, and I said, you know, is there anything we can do to be useful here? You guys obviously are doing a great job. God's doing a great work here. Should we just stay out of the way and uh, let you do your thing? And he said, well, actually, um, you know, this movement has been going on for more than 20 years, and it's still growing, and I think it might be time to tell the story. Would you be willing Mm -hmm. to help me with that? And uh, I thought, wow, that's pretty overwhelming. I'm, you know, I'm not a professional author. I've written a few things, but I'll do what I can. So I said, let's give it a shot and see what we come up with. So that was the beginning of uh, many, many hours of interaction with Victor and uh, other leaders in the movement. Uh, we got together, I don't know how many times, and uh, came up with the manuscript, which was accepted by Wigtape publishers of Publishers, just to share kind of... What's happening in the movement? And so our audience is anybody who wants to know, so what's it actually like in one of these church planning movements? For a number of years, I'd say, especially 10, 15 years ago, you know, a lot of us on the field, we heard rumors of these movements. We heard rumors of amazing things happening, but mm-hmm. it was really hard to get any details, you know? Um, especially in the Muslim world, people were so security conscious, so afraid, you know, word's going to get out. The, the ministry will get destroyed either by the majority religion or by other Christians coming to steal our sheep or so Mm. it was really hard to get any information and so when I landed in connection with the leader of a very significant movement that was actually willing to tell his story I said this is very worth doing and I'm sure there are a lot of people so I'd say probably first audience is um, Christian workers uh, missionaries people that have a burden for the unreached and Uh, Mm -hmm. are either trying or are interested to know how could this happen. Mm -hmm. You know, what does this really look like? Uh, I'm optimistic that a wider Christian audience is interested, and I've found that in the couple years since the book has been published. It's not just missionaries who want to read it, but a lot of Christians in various places. And the book now has been translated into um, a handful of languages. It's already in Indonesian. It's just come out in Swedish. Uh, It's in process in Polish and Korean And if there's another language, I forget. But Mm. uh, we're finding people are interested to know just, so what really goes on? And uh, it was very convenient a couple of years ago when I did a, uh, a discussion, some called it a debate, with a good friend of mine about church planting movements versus a more traditional approach. And it was really handy to have this kind of data on what is actually happening in a movement so that we could discuss the, the details of this is true, this is not true. You know, all movements are this way or not this way. Mm. And uh, so that's part of uh, the audience is any believers that are really interested to know, is this stuff for real? Is yeah. God really doing these kinds of amazing things? They can see at least one example of, okay, here's the details, here's the dynamics, here's what's worked, here's what's not worked, and uh, here's part of how God has done it.
0: Really good, really good. And um, the, um, it was reading the book was like lifting the bonnet on a car mm. and you're, you're looking God. at the workings and you're, <laughs> you're, you're getting underneath everything and you're just seeing and you're hearing the stories firsthand of mm-hmm. different workers through many different stories of engagement in, in different areas. So very good. Beautiful. You can even hear in the language, having worked in India, uh, you could hear some of the language <laughs> coming through. Uh, there and um, yeah, having seen and been involved uh, yeah, somewhat with movements in North India, um, it, it was great to read and to resonate with a lot of what was going on there. Um, Praise God! It's, it's good to note that Bajpuri is not a people group; it's a language, and and right. um, and it's a language of um, maybe East Hindi, where you'd where you'd where you. Talk about uh, the area of Bihar and neighbouring states, and uh-huh. um, it's a it's a large people group of over a hundred million people. Uh-huh. But um, you know, Bihar has this notorious reputation of being the graveyard of missionaries. And um, <laughs> yeah. t- tell us a little bit about the context before we jump into the movement. Uh, what what was that like, and why is this so important to to understand the context? Yeah. Yeah,
1: some of the context, you know, um, as you mentioned, that whole area of North India, especially Bihar, had been known as the graveyard of missions. It's where, you know, so many had tried to share the gospel and uh, not found much fruit. Uh, During colonial occupation, um, the British government did not much encourage sharing the gospel. It was bad for business. And so there wasn't much encouragement there. But even after um, independence... Some folks, um, and in fact, uh, Victor John's in-laws uh, were missionaries in the Bhojpuri area, but in 40 years, or, or they'd been there even longer, they'd seen very few, only 80 or 90 baptisms in decades and decades of work, mm-hmm. very little fruit. And uh, part of that was just the oppressive context. Uh, As you mentioned, Bihar was not only spiritually heavy, but also physically dangerous. There's a section in the book that talks about um, how dangerous some of that jungle area was, where, Mm. you know, one pastor accidentally was was on a river and ended up in this area that was notorious, and uh, he was captured by a group. They said, well, you came in, but you're not going out. And... Mm. (laughs) <laughs> and the Lord delivered him miraculously, but it was the kind of area where, if uh, if a Christian went in there, they were literally taking their life into their hands. Mm. And uh, so that was that was quite a uh, disincentive to share the gospel. But also, uh, some of the factors were, to the extent there had been churches planted and folks in that part of India who had become Christian they'd become very Western. The churches were quite Western, very dependent on foreign missionaries, very dependent on foreign money and so on. And there was a sense that uh, really Indians uh, were not capable of leading a church, were not capable of handling this. And so up until independence, everything was in the hands of the British. And uh, they didn't raise up leaders. They didn't think that was possible. So when the british left and the missionaries left um the people were quite at a loss they uh they couldn't afford the buildings they couldn't figure out how to lead the churches and um it became very much an us versus them mentality you know they were this tiny tiny little group of christians in a huge sea of hindus and muslims Mm. and so this bred kind of a fortress mentality of self-protection rather than outreach such that, you know, if, uh, if a non-Christian came in, if a Hindu walked into one of the churches in those days, people were not excited, you know, and thinking, oh, how could we share Jesus with him? They were thinking, what's this guy up to? You know, this is dangerous. You know, <laughs> why is he here? So the whole ethos was suspicion rather than sharing the gospel. And so there was, um, because the British resources also had been pulled away, there was, um, uh, Uh, scramble to try to come up with resources so there was uh, tension between the Christians tension with the majority and very little passion for sharing the good news but to the extent it was being shared it was being shared as essentially a western gospel it Mm -hmm. was the gospel uh, in European clothes and um, so very much a sense that to become a Christian was to leave your culture and become
0: uh, uh, European
1: essentially a westerner Mm. yeah
0: yeah fascinating because um i remember in the 90s um uh lalu prasad was the chief minister there in Mm. bihar and um Mm
1: -hmm.
0: he was fantastically humorous in the way that he he led a very um defunct state um the (laughs) um um the the notorious stories of corruption and uh, even some of the brilliance of his corruption schemes <laughs> were were amazing to behold. To this extent that um, he he always had us in stitches, but it was like you either had to laugh or you cried because yeah, he scammed tens of millions of dollars out of the World Health Organization's and central wow. central government and um, and uh, a Japanese. Um, minister came into Bihar and said, just give me Bihar for 10 years, we'll turn it into Japan. And La Lupra said, that's nothing. Give me Japan and in 10 years I'll turn it into Bihar. (laughs) (laughs) It was a hilarious thing, but the point being, it was such a defunct and corrupt state and then you jumped mm-hmm. into the church, which is inherited their British models and British properties, yeah. and there was so much infighting, and so much. Mm-hmm. Um, there were the, the, the property issue was huge for them, and yep. there was there was nobody, there was no movement there. To mm-hmm. think of a church planning movement in that context was unthinkable, um, yeah. and um, for God to move. So, um, yeah, so what's happened there is remarkable if you know now mm-hmm. that there are hundreds of thousands of churches not yeah. just believers but churches and movement spreading um, multiplying down generations being led by local leaders mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. from from that position to where we are today that we have to then say well what happened what were some <laughs> of the remarkable shifts that that happened and and maybe let's just jump into that space and said okay we have a we have a mission field that's very unreached high level of um impossibility or implausibility for a Mm -hmm. movement to happen something really radical had to shift dave
1: take us through
0: some of that journey okay
1: okay Yeah, some of what happened there was uh, Victor John had been a pastor for about 15 years in that context, and he was frustrated with the fact that the church was not reaching the majority. And uh, so he um, was able to hear about this movement idea, get some training, and he stepped out of his pastorate and took two years to just seek the Lord and say, God, what are are we going to do here? Mm. And uh, so the Lord led him to look at applying a different model. First, to go after culturally appropriate churches, instead Mm. of church buildings, paid pastors, and something that looked very Western, very European, to go after something that would look very Bhojpuri. And uh, so um, the movement began uh, actually over in UP, Uttar Pradesh, in Mm. the Varanasi area. And um, so it expanded from there. But initially... They were looking at the local language. As you mentioned, Bhojpuri is not a people group. It's a language. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people, you know, they, they scorned that. They thought, this is, this is an ignorant people's language. This is a primitive language. Why would you bother with that? Um, but Victor was convinced that using the local language and the local culture was key to reaching people's hearts. Illiteracy was huge. And, um, and yet they used an approach that was able to function among uh, oral peoples. So they raised up local leaders, used the local language, and um, indigenous songs were written, worship songs in the local Bhojpuri language. Uh, after a few years, a, a song book was put together so they could share with each other some of the indigenous songs that were being written. And um, the work was put in the hands of ordinary people. Mm. So the vision was to equip uh, all of the disciples to make disciples and Mm. to plant churches. So it was a very different understanding of church without Western flavor. And so initially some people said, you know, you're crazy. Uh, Or they said you're a heretic or, you know, it was very strange and very uh, non-traditional. So Victor took a lot of flack in those days, but God... um, convinced him that was the way to go, and the Lord brought some others who caught the vision, and he was very open-handed. He wasn't uh, doing this in secret. He invited other leaders to gather, to pray, to seek the Lord, and uh, to try and say, what might the Lord do to reach these people? And he found that um, the language tended to unite people he said if you focus on caste that will divide people you end mm. up with a divided church mm. but if you focus on language that unites people so the mm. language became very much a unifying factor in the movement and then of course uh, over the course of years some other uh, language groups have been impacted as well uh, both in Bihar and UP and other parts of the country um, and those groups as well have taken inspiration and said hey if that can happen
0: among the Quarry, why couldn't it happen here? Yeah, just just fantastic, and um, that, I mean, you just skipped over some um, things that we need to really stop and recognise. Um, hmm. uh, the focus on language and the focus on not just one uh, homogenous people group approach, which is actually. Quite strong in our missions approach we we focus mm-hmm. on not, not a geographical or language region. We usually narrow it down to a a, a people group um, mm-hmm. and um, and that that 's been a helpful thing for the mission world to focus there but here you 've got a saturation vision going on mm-hmm. where they say mm-hmm. let 's let 's jump into the language and we understand that if we if we focus there we 'll get I think the term was: you can go fishing for a few big fish, or you can throw out a net and drag everything in <laughs> and um, and out of the book. Mm-hmm. And that was a yeah. key key thought. So focus on a language, um, but then the the empowerment of every individual to make disciples. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a radical shift, and I think that's um, in our traditional models everywhere. That is probably one of the biggest barriers uh, for us Mm -hmm. to look at movement, that we think, well, the pastor or the professional or the paid missionary uh, does the ministry. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's a shift there that's that's gone on, a a paradigm shift. Let's unpack that a little bit, the idea of empowerment versus, um, yeah, the other. Yeah, that's that's really a huge key to the movement is –
1: They don't pay pastors, they don't hire leaders, uh, they don't build church buildings, so the leaders are bivocational. Uh, If somebody already has a skill or a job, um, that continues to be their profession, their skill or job, and then they also make disciples and also plant churches. Uh, They equip people uh, through some training centers to do uh, helpful outreach, to do holistic ministry and that's one form of access that they use and um, so they they connect with local people in terms of the access as well go in and say what what do you need how can we help and after they've found out what the local needs are connected with the local leaders in an area they empower the local people and work together with them so the 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 evangelists or the apostolic workers, if you will, come in not so much as evangelists. They come in as um, people that are there to help, Mm. as facilitators, people that help them fill out forms for the government, help them Mm. get access to um, things that they should have from the government, whether it's clean water, whether it's um, adequate sanitation. There are many things that actually the Indian government has said uh, they should be providing But because the people don't know, they don't know enough to ask. Uh, They've not read the documents because Mm -hmm. many of them uh, are not literate. So it's empowering uh, apostolic workers to go and be a blessing in places. And then it's empowering all of the disciples to share the good news and empowering everybody to uh, have the potential to plant new churches. So it, do, it doesn't depend on any one person, and it doesn't depend on a hierarchy. Nobody's waiting for Victor John to give them orders. Mm. Nobody's waiting for uh, a, a paid pastor or somebody with a seminary education to tell them how to do this. Mm. They look at the, the Word of God and say, yeah, God says make disciples, so let's go make disciples. And so the Holy Spirit and the
0: Word of God are their main leader. Fantastic. And so you've got this idea that the um, uh, every Disciple can go and make more disciples. And so exactly. there's a shift um, there in our understanding, even of what is church, because mm-hmm. suddenly um, if every disciple can make disciples and gather groups, usually along mm-hmm. relational lines, right. uh, the idea of church becomes the fruit of that work um, mm-hmm. and not an institutional model. Um, right. Yeah very very yep. interesting in the book i noticed um and picked up on uh, the idea of the lack of titles the mm-hmm. lack of which is a big deal in india it is oh um, huge um you know everybody uh, pasta 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 and to get away from that is like um yeah seems impossible sometimes um <laughs> especially in um in australia not as big a deal but in an asian culture which is very honorific Um, The idea of not having titles and being called Mm -hmm. titles is a huge deal, but yeah, the idea that just being a leader or just recognized as a disciple maker, um, Mm -hmm. massive. Massive. Yeah, it's it's huge. And uh, I
1: really appreciated how countercultural the movement is in that sense. You know, I've always been a big fan of the uh, verses in Matthew 23 where Jesus said, you know, call no man your father, you know, mm-hmm. call nobody your teacher. Uh, yeah. You're all brothers. and um, And so I've been a bit dismayed, actually, at American culture where churches that you know used to not do this have now taken on the the habit of talking about pastor john and pastor frank and i'm like wait th- this we used to call him frank <laughs> you know we this used to be john why are you now treating him like So, uh, Mm. yeah, but as you said, in Asia, even more so, so important to give everybody proper respect, use the proper title. But in the movement, yeah, they they very much are applying the biblical teaching that we are all brothers. And, uh, you know, don't expect to get a special salary, to get a special title, to get a special position, to get special anything for obeying jesus and making disciples you know you're you know you're a leader so who are you leading are you leading your family are you leading a house church mm. are mm. you leading uh dozens of house churches you're mm. a leader uh you're one of god's people that's valuable and while i'm on that i'll mention one other way in which the movement's very countercultural is the role of women mm. uh they have women in leadership of the mm. churches in fact the the head of uh the agency that sparks some of this is a woman uh victor's sister and um so it's very countercultural to have women leading fellowships women uh sharing and also uh in terms of caste they have um people from a low caste that are sharing the good news bringing to faith people from a high caste there's one woman who um You know, she'll lead one fellowship on one side of the river, and it's low caste, and then go over and lead a fellowship on the other side of the river, it's high caste. And uh, so they're they're no respecter of persons in terms of gender or in terms of education. They have leaders who are illiterate and... uh, Often, the people don't stay illiterate long, you know. The book has numerous stories of leaders who, at the beginning, you know, they had just a couple years of education, couldn't read, but they were highly motivated to read the Bible, so they became literate in the process. But that's not a barrier to leadership, you know. Uh, if you can, if you can talk, you can pray, you can share your testimony, you can share the good news, you can bring people to Jesus, you can make disciples, you can lead a house church. So, uh, no respecter of persons, and that's a marvelous and very countercultural
0: thing in that context. Yeah, that's um, that's that was. Came through very clearly on the book some of those countercultural mm. elements, especially knowing the culture, but also mm-hmm. looking yeah. back into our culture in the West. Here, we have mm-hmm. picked up um, uh, some of those um, uh, attributes that we we unconsciously do, and I, I, I recognise that uh, many times we we um, we use the. Ter- the titles often justified by well now we have a lot of Asian culture here and they like it so let's use it <laughs> and, and we have we have um, we have a lot of pastors in Australia um, now adopting titles where before it used to be their first name basis now it's oh, um, now it's uh, pastor so and so and yeah and so this is a this is a very good. Uh, key thing to pick up on. So Mm -hmm. we've looked at the idea of saturation vision. We've looked at the idea of um, uh, going everywhere. Uh, Empowerment, which is a really key idea, that every disciple Mm -hmm. can go and make more disciples. And Mm -hmm. out of that, church is born. Some of the principles that guide the movement that you've really unpacked in chapter 12 of the book, Mm -hmm. um, why don't you highlight a couple of them that you think would be relevant for us?
1: Yeah, one of the key principles, uh, foundational, is passionate prayer. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just uh, something to do before meals or a way to begin and end a meeting, but uh, passionate prayer for the unreached, passionate prayer for their needs, and um, very much uh, a huge part of the movement, significant number of hours of prayer. Mm -hmm. And I asked them, so how do your people manage to pray so many hours a day? And, Mm -hmm. And Victor said, well, some of them are farmers. You know, they're out in the field. For you know, four, five, six hours a day, they got lots of time to pray, you know, or if you're traveling from here to there, you can pray, and, um... So they very much use the time to pray and are passionate about that. And they see that very much as a part of the foundation of what's happening there. Mm. Uh, Also, instantaneous personal witnessing. Uh, Mm. Everybody's equipped to share their testimony, encouraged to share their testimony. There's no sense of, you know, you you should grow in the Lord and become mature and then take a witnessing class to learn how to witness there's Mm. if god has done anything in your life tell people about it Mm. and so it's very spontaneous and um new believers are are sharing with their families and uh praying for people to be healed and seeing god do amazing things Mm. Um, And that's another of the key principles is reaching friends and relatives. Mm. Uh, People are very open about that with their friends, with their relatives. Um, And so it's not just individuals being reached and then you try to pull together an aggregate church. It's very much uh, individuals reaching their uh, network, their people Mm. they know, their parents, their um, uncles, aunts, friends, neighbors. And um, so that's a key to the rapid Mm. growth. Mm. They've got, you know, also the Word of God is the foundation of the thing, not church traditions. And that Mm. makes it much more multipliable. You don't have to Mm. teach them all the history and church traditions. You just teach them to go to the Word of God. And so that's much more multipliable. And that the uh, ethos of obedience and accountability to the Word. Mm. And that's huge. You know, I think often in the West, we've gotten in the habit of thinking, well, it's a good sermon if it was funny, if it was entertaining, you know, if it had a new idea... Um, but in the Bhojpuri movement, it's it's a good sermon if people obey what they heard. And so often it's not even a sermon. It's study of the word of God. It's a discovery study. And then, you know, you get together again and you say, okay, so how did you obey the thing God told you to do uh, last time in his word? And that ethos of obedience to God's word, I think, is one huge key to growth and and multiplication as in a movement. When God's people obey his word actively and pray passionately, things happen. If God's people are just sitting around, you know, thinking, oh, that was nice or critiquing it, Mm. not much happens. Mm. So those are are some of the uh, principles, including partnership with others, you Mm. know, and open handedness. It's not a denomination saying you have to do it our way. Mm. It's saying if you're interested in our training, we're happy to train you. Um, If we can encourage you, we want to do that very open handed in Mm. partnership. And then also sensitivity toward other religions. Uh, they don't insult the Hindu gods. They don't insult the worldview. They don't insult the practices. Mm-hmm. They just talk about the living God. They, mm-hmm. they testify, we have a living God. He heals. He does amazing things. He rescues. And uh, there are signs and wonders. Many miracles happen. Mm-hmm. But as Victor is quick to stress, you know we don't focus on the miracles. We focus on God and mm-hmm. his love and his power. The miracles are just part of what he's doing to Mm.
0: point out his greatness to people. That's just awesome. I I really um, was impacted afresh by the idea that the instantaneous witness can lead to very new believers planting churches very quickly. Um, Yes. And and you have a, a new believer who's come and suddenly if you're following those relational networks, those relational streams, they'll see another group planted very quick and so that 's such a such an encouraging thing um that we wouldn 't we wouldn 't dream of seeing that happen in a western context because usually the traditional modes are uh, you know you have to really uh, sit in the church for a number of years, um, usually mm. making you quite sterile as a believer, not not <laughs> mm-hmm. able to multiply. And then you mm-hmm. have to uh, your knowledge is quite inadequate, so you have to go to the Bible college, and then you've got your head full of theology, which is often mm-hmm. also counterproductive. Um, um, so yeah, it's um, it's quite striking that that this idea of empowerment coupled with new believers witnessing very quickly and planting fellowships mm-hmm. is, is mm-hmm. quite a, um, um, yeah important principle. Yeah. It is. Um, um, let's, let's talk about how does this apply or can it apply in a Western context? Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the question we get often is that's good for India, but it can't happen here. And and <laughs> yeah. and we in the West are so much more sophisticated. We've got such a different culture. We're not as relationally driven. We're individualistic, not communal. Um, all these th- these objections are there, and um, to to dismiss us. What what's your reflection, Dave, on um, uh, church planting movements in the West? Yeah, um,
1: you know we have a God with whom nothing is impossible and it's delightful to see that much of what happens in movements we can learn from. And regardless of whether it results in precisely a movement or not, there's so much that we can learn and apply to become more biblical disciples and watch Mm -hmm. what God will do. And so I think there are quite a few things that we can learn from these movements. And uh, step one is to be willing to learn from our mm. brothers and sisters in Asia and Africa. And sometimes that's a big hurdle for Westerners to realize, yeah, actually they are the big brother that knows more about how to do this thing. And we are the ones that need to sit at their feet and learn. So right. that's the first step is to be quiet and listen <laughs> and and respectfully ask questions and learn from these brothers and sisters that God is using in amazing ways. Um, mention some specific things. I think the first is passionate prayer and fasting. You know, it's interesting that when I hear movement leaders describe what's happening um, in the movement, they always mention prayer and fasting. And I think for a lot of Westerners, when we hear that, we say, yeah, yeah, I should pray more. But rarely do I hear the fasting <laughs> mentioned. <laughs> And I think there's something to that, and I don't know exactly how and why that works in God's economy, but very much um, there's a reluctance, I think, for a lot of Westerners to feel unpleasant feelings, like, I'm really hungry, (laughs) but uh, somehow prayer and fasting is key, and passionate prayer. So I would encourage, um, I do encourage people to do do prayer walks, uh, mobilize prayer, and to pray with unbelievers. When we have an opportunity, you know, in this movement, uh, they're willing to pray with people if there's a need. Whereas I think in the West, we've become so accustomed to a secular atmosphere where it just feels so weird and awkward to to even think of asking an unbeliever if we can pray for them, Mm. that it, it doesn't happen. And so we miss opportunities in front of us day after day that we could pray with somebody or at least say, hey, would you be okay if I prayed for that? They can always say, no, we don't have to invade their space, but even to offer and say, hey, you know, I think um, God could do something with that. Would it be okay if I prayed for that and see what they say? Uh, Many people, even if they don't believe, will be open to prayer. I know. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was on the field among Muslims, hundreds of times I asked a Muslim, can I pray for you for that? And they always said yes. And even when I said, is it okay if I pray in the name of Isa al-Masih, the name of Jesus, they always said yes. (laughs) I never had a Muslim turn me down when I asked Mm. if I could pray for them. And I realized how much in America I'd become secularized and almost never asked anybody if I could pray for them. Whereas in Indonesia, I was asking and getting positive responses. So I think that's key, um, is to be passionate about prayer, including praying with and for unbelievers, not just, oh, well, I'll pray for you later, but with them to actually pray in a sensitive way. And speaking of sensitive, there's a sensitivity to God's spirit that Victor talks about quite a bit in the book, and that is really key to that movement and another movement I know of in India, a very significant large movement, where if you ask them, you know, what's your secret sauce? What? May, how does this happen? They'll say, When we don't know what to do, we pray, we listen. Mm. We listen to God until his spirit tells us what to do. And so we call that one affectionately the listening movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's very much a key to the Bhojpuri movement and really all of the movements that I've interacted with is a sensitivity, a willingness to say, okay, God, I've not got this figured out. What do you want me to do here? Mm. And just be willing to go into the realm of the subjective and listen and do whatever crazy things, it seems like God's Spirit is leading. So mm-hmm. that's the first thing, is the whole realm of prayer and mm-hmm. listening to God's Spirit. Um, a second would be looking for key people. Um, the Boge Prairie movement, as with um, pretty much all of the other movements I interact with, they look for a person of peace. That's not just somebody who's open to the gospel, but somebody who's open to uh, welcome the gospel messenger and open the door to their Uh, network of relatives or friends or whoever so that you as the outsider are not the key person um, sharing the good news but the insider the person of peace gathers their network their group and they become the one who is key in spreading the good news Mm. so looking for those kind of people who are open people of influence people who are connectors and empowering those kinds of people and then also partnering with other people that have a similar vision for a radically biblical simple church mm. and then one more i'll mention um, actually two more one is to build your strategy on clear understanding of the situation be open to doing research to figure out what are people's needs and find ways to help meet those needs so in a western context that's more challenging it's not like you know they they don't have a cl- access to clean water or they don't have a mm. clean toilet in their village uh, it's it's more challenging, and yet that just means we need to work a little harder to discover what are people's needs in the place where we are and what, what's going to touch their lives. And then uh, one more I'll mention that we can learn and apply from these movements is to train people via everyday life, not just in official training events. Mm. Um, you know, our pattern of discipleship tends to be, okay, let's let's meet once a week in a class or maybe even a one-on-one once a week, but it's it's a special sit-down session where we just sit and talk, whereas in the Bhojpuri movement, it's everyday life. It's just doing stuff together, doing life together, doing ministry together, and, uh, you know, never going off to do ministry by yourself. You always take somebody with you. So while you're ministering, they're learning, and then you have them minister and you watch and pray for them. And so it's on-the-job training and equipping, which is very valuable. And then uh, related to that is whenever possible, share a viable church planning movement model that's happening in a similar context. Mm. So, for example, if you're in an urban Australian context and you're hoping to see a movement, one of the great things you can do is figure out, find out, learn, where's a movement happening in some similar context? Maybe not another Australian city, maybe... In Great Britain, maybe in the U.S., maybe in South Africa, or maybe a different location in Australia, but show something that's similar to help people realize not just this is imagination, you know, Um, this is something concrete, it's real, I can see it, I can ask questions, I can see how my context is similar to that context and learn from it. So in all of these ways, we can learn from the brothers and sisters in these movements and say, yeah, God is able to do this there, and God is
0: not limited. So let's let's go for it and see what He'll do. So good, Dave. So good. Thank you. That's um that's just um, brilliant. Let me just bounce off a, a couple of things that you've just said there, mm-hmm. and yeah. and the idea of um, uh, prayer and movements. I really in, uh, appreciated in the book Victor's comments about. This is not something that we can press a button with God and and pray <laughs> x amount of hours and then a movement pops at the other end. Movements right. are a work of God, and we pray and we engage with God, and it kind of takes the pressure off, but invites uh-huh. us into a radical uh, walk with God to 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 pray fast and and be part of what God is wanting to do. So that's that's just um, that was just very encouraging. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like the idea of, um, you know, you, you said radical, biblical, simple models of church and and, mm-hmm. and ways, and and um, I do think that's that's really true. Uh, I noted that you know as they, um, broke through into new areas, which I think we have to view the West, especially in Australia and Western mm-hmm. Europe. Uh, maybe you will resonate for North America. I'm not sure, but they they researched. An area mm-hmm. they prayer walked. They raised prayer. Yep. They looked at yep. relational connections, and they had mm-hmm. an access ministry according to felt needs. And yep. and um, I think as we look at the West, you know, absolutely true. We we walk into an area we we don't see the need for uh, community development, but we do see other mm-hmm. needs like loneliness. Right. and And um, what are, what are some of the ways that we can meet the deep felt needs of the community that might not be as mm-hmm. clear and obvious in a wealthy um, multicultural pluralistic society that we find ourselves in the West? love right. the idea of training everyday life and um, mm-hmm. yeah, and finding viable models just just really good. I hope that people who are listening to this will run out and Get a copy of the Bajpuri breakthrough book and and just be inspired as I was. Um I thank you so much. I just wonder if you have any last minute words of encouragement for us as we pursue movement together.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, as we've mentioned already, with God, nothing's impossible. And it's it's fun to watch the trajectory of this thing over the past 20, 25 years. Because when uh, people first started hearing about the Bhojpuri movement, when David Watson was sharing this with folks, I've heard from three different movement leaders in Africa of their first interaction with David Watson. And uh, one of them said, you know, he's talking about this movement stuff and saying, this is how I should do it. And uh, and this brother said, I've am alre- from a Muslim background. I've already planted churches among Muslims. This guy doesn't know anything about Africa or about Muslims. It's not going to work here. And he said, I argued with David Watson, and <laughs> and then God got a hold of me and said, Well, if you keep on with the way that you're doing this, planting churches among Muslims, are you ever going to accomplish the vision that God's given you to reach this whole area? And he said, "Oh, I'm. I need to try something different." And so he began investigating. He began trying some of the principles, searching scripture. And uh, this is the testimony of two or three different leaders. All of them that said, "Okay, I'll try it." And now each of them is leading a very significant movement, including a lot of Muslim peoples. And uh, so God said. God showed them, yeah, actually I can do this among Muslims. Similar thing in Indonesia, where people said, well, that's Hindu, you know, this is Muslim, this is different, it's not going to work here. And then, you know, a few years later, as these stories began to come out of the movements among Muslims in Africa and in Indonesia, um, then the people working in the Middle East said, well, that's not going to work here. You know, those Indonesian Muslims, they're not hardcore Muslims like the Middle East, it's not going to work here. And, uh, you know, our God, he loves to get a laugh out of it when his people say, <laughs> God can't do that here. <laughs> and and then, you know, it was people saying, okay, that's all rural work, you know, in in uh, India, and in Africa, that's rural stuff. And some of this is in the book, actually, the Bhojpuri book as well. He, Victor said, you know, I could see when I talked with people, they said, okay, but that's not going to work in an urban area. And <laughs> so, well, God showed up and uh, showed that this can work in an urban area as well. And so whatever context God is calling you to work in, don't say, this area is too hard. You know, a movement couldn't happen here because nothing's impossible for God. You know, uh, disciple-making movements, church-playing movements are not a recipe. Uh, There's no guarantee. You know, you follow these 12 steps, you add water, and poof, a movement happens. But, you know... There are certain things that we can now say we've learned, we've observed, the research has been done, the examples are there, that if you do certain things, you will not have a movement. You know, <laughs> If you use money in certain ways, if you have certain structural patterns, uh, a movement will not happen. So don't do those things if you want a movement. There are other things that if you do those things, they greatly increase the likelihood that a movement could happen. It's kind of like, you know, you want to go sailing with your sailboat, you know. If you don't put up your sails, even when the wind blows, you're not going anywhere. You know, it'll be a very slow ride. So there are certain things you need to do um, with your sailboat. You have control over whether, whether you put up your sails, how you aim your sails, and then when the wind blows, you go. Now, if the wind doesn't blow, you could have your sails just right, but it isn't going to happen. Same thing with a movement. You could do all the right things and not see a movement happen because ultimately, a movement is not about what we do. A movement is ultimately the power of God's spirit at work through the things that we do. So you need the sails up. You need the wind. Uh, We do our part and we pray like mad. We pray passionately that God will do his part. So that's what I encourage everybody with is... Do the things that are biblical, do the things that are more likely to lead to movements, and we can see great things happen. God bless you.